Good morning, Arizona homeowners. Why don't you walk with me around back here? You're tuned into Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for 29 years. And we're going to see who we have outside this morning for outdoor living hour. And by golly, we have the full crew. As uh, listeners know, the, we rotate a different specialist each Saturday of the month. September is one of those special Saturdays where we get a fifth Saturday. And we thought, well, why don't we bring them all in together? Let's start off with Miss Julie Murphy of the Farm Bureau. What what are we going to be talking about in the farm today? Hey, Romy, all sorts of fun stuff, including prepping for our fall and winter gardens and remembering all of the neat things that our farmers and ranchers are doing in the fall. It's it's harvest time. It's harvest time, and we have pumpkin festivals coming up pumpkin as well. Pumpkin festivals. We have our cotton farmers that are getting gearing up for their cotton harvest, all sorts of fun stuff. Eisenhower, what are we going to do in the trees today? Glad to be here with the panel and talking trees today. And Mr. Greg Peterson, our urban farmer. Hey, hey. How was your Great American Seed Up? Oh, my gosh. The Great American Seed Up rocked. And, uh, you know, it, yeah, it was just amazing. You had said you hoped to not take any seeds with you. Did, <laughs> did you accomplish your goal? Pretty much. How many much. does that account for? Oh, I, there was probably 1,500 pounds, 70 different varieties, uh, all the way from corn to zucchini to and with your kale. germination rate, mm-hmm. all those make it into the ground. You're you kind of made a dent on your sustainable That's, Phoenix yep. Arizona goal here. Yeah, I did. Wonderful. Yeah, I did. We did. We'll get uh, we'll get more details about that. And Mr. Jay Harper now of the Farms Choice. Welcome to the program. Y'all are an organic fertilizer. Uh, the, supplier, yeah, that's right. Propagator so, and supplier. Yeah, we, 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 from from the, you know what, to the end, we we make it, and well, we don't really make it, we process it, um, and yeah, it's time. Uh, Julie mentioned harvest time, but it's also planting time. Our farmers in Yuma are planting all the leafy green stuff, and mm-hmm. they're just ripping and tearing down there, getting all of that winter produce ready for, for folks for all over the nation has grown, a huge chunk of it has grown right there, and our own backyard in Yuma. But as people have been driving around town, they've been seeing a lot of this scalping activity, lawns being mowed short, especially the golf courses and the resorts and the commercial property. So it's about that time to start thinking about a winter lawn. You know, we had to have a little elevation education with the family. Last weekend after the broadcast, we went to Chino Valley. And they have, you know, the winter, the ryegrass, we're getting ready to plant for winter, is their summer lawn. And the kids are like, you said we couldn't have this for summer. How come the Scots have it? <laughs> and they explain the elevation and temperature difference. Ryegrass is most of the country's summer lawn. It, we're one of the very few places that mm-hmm. it's a winter lawn. You know, uh, Palm Springs, Phoenix, maybe South Texas. You know, those everywhere else, ryegrass is what they have as their permanent summer lawn. And it's a beautiful lawn. They they like this more than they love to swim in the summer. But man, they. That green rye lawn is the highlight of the outdoors. I'm often conflicted with folks that are struggling with their summer lawn. And I'm saying, well, how often are you out in the 110 degrees enjoying that summer lawn anyway? The winter lawn is, if you're going to have a lawn, and that's really the one you're going to enjoy the most. So and it, takes, it would take some takes real paradigm swap to get us to think that way. But if we were going to let a lawn go, I'd be for letting the Bermuda. It takes more water. Mm-hmm. It's harder to you know, it's harder to keep it looking good. It's a whole lot more work to mow it and sweating and all of that in the heat. Harder to get rid of when you're finally done with it. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. So going into our rye scalping, what's the point of that? Well, 
What we want to do, back in the day, we, we used to tell people to get it down right to the dirt. I mean, get rid of everything. That's kind of changed. We do not want you to take the lawn down too short and stress it out too much. We just want to take enough of the growth and the leaf material off so that the seed can find its way down because that seed needs to make contact with the soil. We don't want it rooting up in the blades or the thatch of the lawn. So we want to remove enough material that we can get the seed down to the lawn. So that's the first thing we do is we go in and remove some leaf material. We still call it scalping, but we don't want it down to the dirt like we used to at one time. We also used to tell people and have people that would dethatch or verticut or power rake at the same time. That's definitely a no-no as well. Just a mowing enough to get rid of the material so that seed, when it's broadcast, can find its way and make contact with the soil. Then we do uh, suggest that folks use a starter-type fertilizer. Uh, Farm's Choice has a great organic product for that. Um, there are other products out there that will help that seed, once it starts to germinate, to have some nutrients there for that seed to take off, but also to help that Bermuda grass go to sleep, to store up some carbohydrates so that it can come back next spring healthy and strong. Um, so a little bit of start. And then if you have any bare spots, which unfortunately most people might have a bare spot or two in their lawn, you probably want to top that or cover those with some type of composted material, a seed topper, something to keep the moisture around that seed so it doesn't dry out. The biggest reason for failure in winter lawns is lack of moisture, is not watering properly. It, it has to stay pretty constantly moist for that 10 days or two weeks that it's going to take for it to germinate. And a quick side note, we have a text question here for you. Someone wants to know, is rye the only thing in the desert floor, you know, below that 2,000-foot elevation that we can plant in the winter? That's a good question. So we use what are called perennial rye grasses because they're a finer-bladed, more of a turf-quality, turf-mowable lawn-type, a golf course-quality lawn. Annual ryegrass is more of a pasture-type grass. It gets big, thick-bladed, very wet, hard to mow, gooey, sticky. Not not the best choice, but it, it's an option, especially if you have a huge lawn or a pasture-type situation. There are some uh, – there's a, there's a grass called Poa trivialis, which is a really fine-bladed uh, in the bluegrass family. Um, that's very expensive. It's a little harder to find. It's wonderful. Um, really, if you like to mow it like a golf course green real tight, that's a good choice for you. And fescues we have, which are a good cool season grass. Again, they're a little coarse, um, you know, not the best quality uh, for a small backyard lawn if you really just have a small lawn and you're going to be rolling around on it with the kids. But it is an alternative. So there are some options, yes. And I guess I should mention that text number is 411923. And maybe the best way today with the host of guests we have, I don't know how much time we're going to have to take calls, but you're welcome to call in and see if we can get your question on the air, one 767 4348 And uh, insect plant identification, you can snap a picture and email it to info at rosyonthehouse.com. But I'm going to guess for this format, your text to get a question in the studio is probably best, 411923. So we've got our scalping done. There are other options than rye, but it's still the most predominant, so we'll focus on that. Because uh, if you're starting the first time, if you've got a neighbor that's done it, the chances are that you know, it's they're the going to know it. It's the best option. If, if you want a nice winter lawn, 
it's it's still really your best option. So, you're, Greg, you're, Mr. Peterson, hey, Urban thanks. Farmer, per- jump in here. Perennial rye. So that lets me leads yeah, me to believe confusing. that it comes back year after year. Yeah, well, remember our first part of the conversation where ryegrass is most people's permanent lawn. Yes, not ours. So uh, in those places, it is perennial. It freezes. It, it, the snow falls on it. Mm-hmm. It goes to bed for the winter and it comes back in the spring. It won't generally make it through the summer here. The heat kills it. Got the heat it. generally kills Got it. it. Although in some air lawns that are very shady, you will see it continue through or actually come back even after it's maybe gone away when it got real hot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, yeah, the reason we plant perennial, though, is because of its qualities. Quality, exactly. Very fine-bladed. Well, that the, will be the, Greg's trivia question in his next podcast. There you go. There you go. <laughs> One of the things I notice at the urban farm is that I get ryegrass coming up. I don't plant it, but it comes up. It just shows up. So some of those perennials will, especially in shady areas, come back. Mm-hmm. But by and large, not enough of it yeah. will ever come back to, it. to count on that being a great lawn. And one of those precious irrigated irrigated properties. Oh yes, there's that's a whole new ball game for a lot of uh, <laughs> a, a lot, lot of, of growing. Yeah. So in the wintertime, when it's under snow, it survives. Could we mulch it and keep the mulch damp in the summer and get through or? I mean, the, the seed's uh, so the cheap, heat, it's pretty... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just not worth it because the heat with that kind of organic cover, you would have all kinds of fungal problems and disease problems mm-hmm. that would occur uh, by trying to do that. So, And I guess I would imagine in the summer thinking about it, of course, remember, it might most, be a little pungent. Most people are going to are overseeding a summer lawn with this. So come summer, they have a Bermuda grass or some type of hybrid Bermuda that does come back, and that is their lawn then for the summer months. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, so there's no real, and, and really, um, you know, you, a good quality seed is going to run you maybe $2 a pound. A pound covers 100 square feet. So, a, you know, a 2,000 uh, square foot lawn is going to take 20 pounds, $40 for seed once a year. is just probably not worth all the effort to try and figure Save out it, a way yeah. to get it through. And do you use a uh, rotary motor or a real mower and pick up the clippings on your rye? Well, you can do either. I'm a big advocate of leaving clippings on the on the grass and not picking up clippings. Um, and you can you can do that with either type of mower. Um, sometimes you have to vary uh, the frequency at which you have to mow. The warmer it gets and the faster it grows, you might have to mow more often so you don't have these big windrows of grass <laughs> laying there or you have to go over it a couple of times. But I, I'm, I really encourage folks to leave their clippings. There's all kinds of nutrients in that. The, your grass clippings are, you know, 90% water anyway. You know, it used to be kind of a, a tail that folks would say that builds up thatch. Well, that's not how thatch is built up. Um, those clippings falling down into the ground are just like mulching around a garden or rose bush or a fruit tree. So if you can, you know, regardless of the type of mower, and you can buy a mulching mower as well. Mr. Jay Harper of the Farm's Choice, all natural products. You can find them at nurseries throughout the state. Most garden centers uh, all across the state carry them, you bet. It doesn't get much more local or organic than the Farm's Choice. Absolutely, both of those. (laughs) All right, it's Rosie on the house. You're tuned in every Saturday morning here in the Outdoor Living Hour, starting at 8 o'clock sharp. Coming back with Greg Peterson of the Urban Farm. If you'd like to jump on the line, it's 888-767-4348. 
Well, back in the garden, we're landing now at Mr. Greg Peterson's Urban Farm, nestled in pretty much central Phoenix, central as Phoenix. central as you can probably get. Yep, near the 51 and Bethany Home. Excellent. And you've been there on the Urban Farm for 30 Not quite. I'm, I'm right behind okay. you guys. Okay. You guys, you're in your 29th year this year. I'm in my 28th year okay. in the Urban Farm. Let me, let me, a little bit about the Urban Farm. Uh, it's a third of an acre. It's... Built in 1948, the, a third of an acre is 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep with the house in the middle of it. And basically what I've done is I've landscaped the yard edible. And then I show it off. I do, we do tours and classes and, uh, you know, all kinds of great stuff like that to get people growing their own food. And occasionally you have like the Great American Seed Up and right. you'll have your fruit tree program fruit. coming up yep. in the springtime. But yeah. uh, you wanted to talk fruit trees today. Yeah. So th the way my fruit tree program works, this is my 18th year of teaching people about fruit trees, is in the fall of every year, starting the first Saturday of September, we launch our annual fruit tree program and it's an education program and we do online classes we do in-person classes we do pre-recorded classes basically my goal is to get people educated about fruit trees you can come and take the fruit tree classes uh, and i offered multiple different kinds if you go to urbanfruittree.org you can uh, download a series of emails that teaches you about fruit trees and how to interact with fruit trees and then you have an opportunity to purchase some fruit trees. So my fruit tree program is education first, and then you get your fruit trees from us if you so choose. And those fruit trees come in in January and February. So then I run the Urban Farm pop-up tree nursery for three weekends usually in January and three in February. So we're open a total of 12 to 14 days in January, February, and early March. So where is your pop-up nursery happen during those few days uh, i have a really cool warehouse that i that i rent near 7th street in highland so it's really centrally located and people can come when they come to get their fruit trees they have all the supplements that you need to add to your tree the materials to plant them with the soils that kind of stuff we provide it all along with the education and this year i'm really excited uh, i am writing a i'm going to call it a manifesto it's going to look like a book uh, on everything fruit trees you know how to plant them how to prune them uh, you know so on and so on and you work with some of the premier names in fruit tree grafting for yes. for your spots. You've got Dave Wilson's. You got Ellie Locke, uh, Ellie Cook, Ellie Cook, Ellie Cook. Ellie Cook. Very good. Yeah. And then uh, for citrus, we uh, work with Sunset Citrus Nursery. They're down in they're down in Yuma. Really great people down there. And Julie, how many citrus trees are in Yuma? <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to consult with my citrus individuals but one of the things that i like to kind of highlight about greg is the passion that he has and how he really helps the urban so-called farmer yeah and that can be any of us yeah. really get into it and um it's very popular when we published that one article that was highlighting your first weekend event in september yep. i was amazed at how many people oh, went to yeah. that article something like 300 to 400 people linked Hit that link. So nice. Very popular. Yeah. Now I'm going to put you on the spot, Greg. Please. Let's say I only have room for five trees. Yeah. And I want something as close to year round as I can get for harvest. Ah, doesn't good. have to all be citrus. Doesn't uh -huh. have to be nuts. Uh -huh. Doesn't all have to be stone fruits. Uh -huh. What? What's my best harvest combination uh -huh. for having something year round? Very good question. I've not had that question before. So let's start in December, January. Okay. That's when the citrus is ripe. So pick your three favorite citrus. Okay. Uh, you two, want me to? 
two or three favorite citrus. No, just for listeners. Okay. You know, pick your two or three favorite citrus. Lemon, yeah. orange, grapefruit. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And check their ripening times. So there are varieties of lemons that ripen at one particular time of year in the winter and, uh, you know, lemons that ripen at another time. So you want to check your ripening times. So I would plant two or three citrus that, and they usually ripen from end of November to May. So they'll, and the, the nice thing about citrus is they stay on the tree for a long time. So that, that covers our citrus in the wintertime. Only pick the ones you love. Only pick the ones you love. So you're planting what you love to eat. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to go a little more than five. Okay. But in March, we have this absolutely incredible Pakistani mulberry. The mulberries, it's a it's a the most incredible berry. They're usually about three inches long. It's highly prolific. They they ripen in March. Uh, in May and June, peaches, apricots, and apples. And there are varieties of all three of those that ripen during that period of time. And then August, July, August, September is really hard because it's so dang hot. In fact, I just, you know, I tell people to take a vacation from gardening then. Uh, and then you <laughs> That's can, what your canning's for. <laughs> that, that's what your canning's for. And then um, pomegranates are great for the fall. So there you go. There's as close to year around as we can get. No nuts in there? You know what? Here's the thing about nuts, and I'll do it quickly. Uh, you can buy organic, any kind of nuts that you want at the grocery store, 12 months a year. They're hard to grow. They're lots of hard, water. They're lots of water. They're hard to harvest. It's like just buy them at the grocery store. When you store. talk about your eighty percent sustainability, that twenty is the the, there you the go. nuts fall under the twenty, not yeah. you. So yeah, not, grow, grow the fruit. The tree nuts here in Arizona are the pecans and the pistachios. We do a great job all over state, mm -hmm. but especially Cochise County. So, Greg, you're right. Just buy yeah. them from the store because you're probably buying them from an Arizona farmer. Yay. Or Green Valley pecan. Yeah, Green Valley pecans. One of the biggest pecan growers in the nation. Mr. Greg Peterson, we appreciate it. When we get back, we're going to talk more trees with John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service. Talking, uh, getting our evergreens ready for the nice. little, hopefully, frost. Yep. <laughs> now, from fruit tree planting, let's get into pruning. This segment, we're going to bring in John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service. Greg's got us planted. We've got our fruit trees picked out. If we've already been down that process a little bit and have some matured fruit trees. Let's talk about care and pruning of them. Well, as you all have noticed across the valley right now, trees are starting to drop their leaves. The Chinese elm trees near my place are just dumping leaves, and that's going to increase uh, in a big way in the next couple of months. But your fruit trees, you'll notice all your stone fruit trees, your apricots, your peaches, your plums, your uh, pear trees are all going to start losing their leaves. Deciduous trees... Uh, which lose their leaves this time of year, are best pruned in the winter. So as they start to lose their leaves, uh, we start thinking about um, our, our pruning schedule for all those trees. Now, they have different requirements. Um, you need to know when your fruit trees actually produce fruit. Sometimes they produce fruit on first year's growth. Other times they, they produce fruit on second year's growth. So you want can't prune them all back at the same time. Uh, amount because you might end up pruning off the actual fruit-bearing branches. So you need to look at your apples, look at your plums and your peaches and your different um, stone fruits, and do a little bit of research, find out what those pruning requirements are, and then you can go about pruning them back. 
Now, can you tie that into a strategic thinning? Because those stone fruits, to get a good, you know, fist-sized apple, uh, you know, we don't have big Macintoshes here, but your Anna apples still get decent size. You've got to thin. Can you thin by trimming and not have to worry about it in the fall, or do you still have to go out there in the fall and pick one apple off of every cluster? Well, you can prune um, and do that thinning, that selective fruit thinning, different times during the, the fruit set. You know, sometimes it's easier when the fruit is smaller because then the clusters aren't going to get so crowded. Sometimes if you wait until the apples are nearly mature, those uh, clusters of four and five apples are so tightly bound together, it's hard to kind of pull them apart. So, yeah, a little bit of thinning early in the season. If you've had your, your, your fruit long enough, several years, you can know about how much fruit you can start taking off. With apples, you're not going to be quite as aggressive as you would be with peaches, for instance. Peaches, you know, get so darn heavy, and because they bear fruit on current year's growth, all the fruit is out on the ends of the branches, and they'll get real heavy and, and drop down. So we usually recommend coming in early in the season when the fruit's just, you know, uh, very small pea-sized fruit and, and a little bit larger. As soon as you can start to see the fuzz on the on the little fruits, you can start to to, to thin them out. We usually take off out about a third, maybe maybe even fifty percent of them early on. And you might even think about taking some of the fruit that's a little further out on the branch because that's going to take a little of that leverage, that lever arm um, off the end of those branches to make them a little more secure in the wind. Uh, take and bring the weight, you know, closer to the center of the tree. And especially as it relates to the peaches, you put all this time in there and you get them thin and about the time they're ready to pick it, the birds find it. Yeah. Well, I was (laughs) going on to say, too, that you want to be sure that you you prune them a little later in the season because once they start getting bigger, you'll start to see the branches droop a little bit under the weight. And that's time to go in and thin them out again. Because, as you were pointing out, if you do that thinning carefully, the fruit that remains on the tree is going to be larger in size. Uh, the tree will be able to support that and, and direct all the sugars to those to those remaining pieces of fruit. It's hard to, to, to sometimes bring yourself to start. I, that's what I was going to say, John. There's a psychology to that because it's like <laughs> I don't want to prune the fruit. You know, no, I want it all. <laughs> I know you don't want to give up. You can't see that fruit dropping on the ground, but you have to remember that at the end of the season, mm. having a nice safe tree that has no broken branches and beautiful fruit that's uh, um, nice and large is, is is your end result. That's how they're doing it in their, in your farm fields, Julie. If you <laughs> want are, your store right. quality, you got to thin. Okay, I've been counseled. I'm going to be better at it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't say it was easy. We just no. said you got it. <laughs> yeah, the, so you've, you've got your thinning sequence, and then you've got your fruit that's starting to mature. And, and uh, the... Uh, You'd mentioned also was that last point you you you, you brought up about the uh, uh, the, the, the birds eating it right the birds, about the harvest yes, time. <laughs> yes, the birds eating it. A lot of my my uh, uh, customers are asking us, you know, do we cover our trees? What can we do? And if they're small enough to cover, it's worth it to try to get a bird netting over. Uh, don't put it on too early in the season because then the um, the branches likely actually grow through the bird netting, and it's a pain to try to get it out. And it's basically you have to rip it and destroy it to to get it out. But wait until they're ripe enough. You start to see the birds starting to peck. Then go ahead and get your bird netting over the trees. We, our apricot has gotten so big that we just don't bother netting it anymore. It's, you know, a good 15 feet high, and it's just more work than it's worth. We get three or 400 pieces of fruit on the tree, and we just let the birds have what they will. We only have about a two-week a two uh, pruning season anyway. So we'll put down a nice clean sheet underneath the tree, and I'll just come in and gently um, shake it, you know, 
and then we'll pull the sheet out, harvest that fruit, then bring the sheet back in the next day. And literally every day, um, there's new fruit that's ripening. It's because obviously the fruit that's going to be dropping will be the ripest fruit. You don't want to go in. You can either you can go in and start picking, you know, pulling on each piece of fruit, and if it pulls off in your hand, it's nice and ripe, ready to eat. But that's a lot of lot of work. I just gently shake the branches, and you get a little bit of damaged, bruised fruit. But man, it's a lot easier than going around and trying to pick all those, you know, a couple, two or three hundred pieces of fruit. But I liked it that way. Sometimes the birds will get a little bit. I'll even cut the little pieces that the birds have pecked, you know, cut a little piece of that, that, that fruit off and try to save the rest. And um, They we, usually find the sweetest fruit anyway, so you might as well try they if do. there's well, something gonna, left. They're going to get their, their bit, and we just leave those to them. But we, uh, we love to process ours. You know, what do you do with 300 pieces of fruit? We usually um, uh, cut ours and either freeze them. And that's a really nice summer uh, summer snack all through the year. Or you can um, dry it. We like to dry ours, too, and put it in a little dehydrator. And uh, you, you can uh, process a good, you know, 30, 40 pounds of fruit off of a mature tree. Snack on it all year long? I know. Oh. We got some. We got peaches in our fridge right now. I got mangoes. We got. We went to the, the, uh, uh, the market this last um, month or two. Um, the uh, Club 3000, 3000 Club, you guys familiar with I, that? I've heard okay. of that. Market on the Move. Talk, and Explain that real quick in, in 30 seconds for the listeners. Well, this is a wonderful place. Look it up online. It's a, a 3000 Club. It's called Market on the Move. They have a couple locations, just distribution centers here in town. You can get up to 60 pounds of produce for 10 bucks. You just can't beat it. And every if you get on their email list the night ahead of the market, they'll tell you what's available. Cantaloupe, watermelon, grapes. And in, in the, all this summer, they had mangoes, unlimited numbers of mangoes. So I'd get two or three cases, go home and process them all, and then we would just uh, st- start de- dehydrating them. And we've just got a freezer full of dried, wonderful dried mango. And uh, for 10 bucks, you just can't go wrong. It's really great. Now, on our citrus, we leave them alone because they're getting ready to go into harvest. We don't want to be right. trimming or pruning or messing with them. Yeah, you don't want to be pruning your citrus because that's like taking the winter coat off your plants just before they head into the cold cold weather. And, uh, yeah, the the citrus will start ripening. Again, uh, the color of citrus, by the way, is not a function of, of, of ripeness necessarily. You, you know, people think that the citrus turning colors is a function of, of the sweetness, but it really is a function of the temperature. As temperatures start to drop, they'll start to color up really nicely. But it doesn't mean necessarily that they're ripe. Some of our... our um, are, uh, the Valencia and the Arizona sweets are later um, ripening. The, the, uh, um, the navel oranges are really early ripeners, December, January. So you need to look at the schedule and find out what, uh, when your uh, uh, citrus is, is at its optimum ripeness before you start picking it. Just because it turns color doesn't mean it's going to be the, uh, the best to eat. Now, if somebody missed that early September fertilizing around Labor Day, is it too late? Or is it Memorial Day in May? It's Labor Day. It's Labor Day. Yeah, no, this this is a good time. We we like to do fall fertilizing this time of year. As I've said in the past, fall fertilizing, if you're going to do an, an annual fertilizing, the research has shown is the best time because the tr- the all of our plants can use that 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 fall fertilizer for a big their big spring push of growth. Uh, at roots uh, are very active in the soil throughout the, 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 the winter season, even though the top growth is starting to slow down. Uh, especially our deciduous trees are very active in, uh, uh, in, in the soil. 
and they're processing those nutrients and, and storing them and ready for that big spring push. Quite often, if we wait until spring or early summer to start fertilizing, it's kind of after the fact. The trees have already had that big push of, of vegetative growth. And so if you're going to fertilize once a year, this is a great time to do it. Um, and we can do that pretty much up until, you know, middle of uh, November, maybe first of November. You know, the next couple of months are fine. And that's all trees. We're not just talking citrus here. Your evergreens, your shades, your oaks, your elms, your fruit. I mean, sure. even something going deciduous and, and dormant, you can still fertilize now. It'll still take it in and store up for the winter, like you were saying. Yeah, and there's some argument for uh, fertilizing all of our trees just from the standpoint that we are always raking the leaves, um, that we don't really allow the natural nitrogen cycling to take place. We're taking the leaves, raking them, bagging them, and throwing them away. And uh, for that reason, maybe a a, a, a general nitrogen fertilization for all of your trees is a really good, a good idea, and fall is a great time to do it. See, I... <clears throat> I use you all the time to not rake leaves at home for that reason. So I thank you for that. <laughs> I think that's just an excuse, Romy. <laughs> I, I'm, it's no. the nitrogen cycle. I agree. <laughs> it's science. It's it's not even science. It's nature. You're right. And nature needs this. Leave the leave the leaves. <laughs> we have uh, <clears throat> Julie. You're up next. Are you? What are we going to talk about in our farm bureau the segment? The fall festivals. Our uh, market basket. Uh, food prices went up a little bit. Got to stretch those food dollars. So, All right, we'll get to that next segment. Mr. John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service, thanks for joining us here this Saturday morning talking trees. My pleasure. And if somebody wanted to uh, schedule an arborist? Just go to itreeservice.com, the letter itreeservice.com. Man, it has been an extremely busy and fun hour, but uh, it's not over yet. We're getting to the big boy time. Tractors, yeah. trucks. Yes. Mud, horses, cattle. <laughs> Corn mazes, pumpkin festivals, all sorts of fun. And Arizona Farm Bureau is here to help you figure out what you want to do in the fall. And Julie, you are the official spokesperson. Is that your title? You're I don't kind know of the if I'm all official, queen but I, I am like one that. of the spokespeople. I think you should have well, that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I love talking about our farmers and ranchers in Arizona agriculture, $17 billion industry. Rumor has it that this fall U of A is announcing, and that's it's going to be north of that. And everybody's contributions, whether that's urban gardens or the big farmers down in Yuma, are contributing to that huge number that's going to be coming out in November. Nice. I can't wait to hear what that update is. Yeah, the the rumor is again it's north of that seventeen billion. But um, any that's, that's... any guesses we might give you. Maybe a bag of pistachios or something. Har- that's that's <laughs> harvested. That's the value of our harvest. Well, it's the value. It's the cash receipts value. And then all the residual contributions because of the ag industry, including our some suppliers, yeah. including uh, the labor force. Mm-hmm. So all of that's calculated into that big number. In fact, it's a top tier industry in the state of Arizona. If we didn't have agriculture, yeah, I know. There we go. If we didn't have agriculture, we couldn't have any of the other industries because it's a Mm. primary industry. And you don't have to be a farmer to take advantage of being a Farm Bureau member. Correct. Thank you. Any homeowner can sign up to become a Farm Bureau member. You'll have a huge list of discounts and benefits from uh, Harkins Theater, Legoland's on here, Knott's Berry Farm, Office Depot, Homes Direct the flower shops here i mean this list just goes on and on it's kind of like when you buy one of those big books 
and our annual fee, if you're an associate member, is only 59 bucks. But it's almost like buying one of those wow. big coupon Sign bu- me up. books. All right, we'll set you up. You right. can go online and uh, Where? register as a member, azfb.org. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's very important. So, so um, we enjoy it, and uh, we have 24,000 members. And they're both wow. ag and associate. And believe uh-huh. it or not, there's more associate or non-agriculture yeah. members than there are members. So that's one of the interesting caveats. So you are, Greg, because you're going to sign up online mm-hmm. at azfb.org. Mm-hmm. You're supporting yourself because you are an urban farmer. Right. But you're supporting all of our farmers and ranchers because we're an advocacy group is yeah. one of the key aspects of it. And we, of course, just came out with our um, market basket where we go into the stores. It's not a scientific study, but it's an important study, and we do it every quarter. Mm-hmm. 16 market basket items, and they're core basic items representative of the things that we grow here in Arizona and across the country. And we just came out with our Arizona food prices, and we're up 5% in the third quarter for this year. But that's not unusual. Historically, our thir- third quarter market basket is typically higher. We just went historically back in about Four or five of our quarter market baskets for this period in the year, mm-hmm. we show this uptick. and But typically, it has a tendency to go down. And remember, we're not uh, pricing using our friendship card when we go into our favorite mm-hmm. grocery stores. We're actually just taking prices off the shelf. Is that the retail cost? That, it's the retail yeah. cost. So I always contend that any of my Arizona families, some of my moms, can do a better job pricing for those food items. But it's good for you and I because mm-hmm. it kind of gives us a trend whether we're going up in price or down in price. And one of the tools that y'all have on your website that I love is feelyourplate.org where you right. can find, oh, yes. let's say you want a organically grown bean, uh, Sweet Daddy P, and you can put that in, put your yep. zip code, and it'll tell you where, where the go. closest place to get it, whether it's a, uh, a farm that sells direct to consumers Correct. or a like a a Sprouts Farmer's Market. Right. We actually have three searchable databases on fillyourplate.org, and one of them is for our farmer's market. So if on your smartphone, if you're in Prescott on a Saturday morning and you want to see if any of the farmer's markets are open, you can find out because we have a variety up there. Nice. Um, we've got the direct market product, ag products, is a searchable database. And then just a variety of things, including the blog that that posts we have an article about three times a week so we're constantly sharing this information with our arizona families Mm -hmm. and most of that information by the way is based on what my arizona families are telling me they want to hear so we're covering a lot of issues and what's fall without a pumpkin maze or corn patch or a place to go pick a pumpkin y'all's newsletter has a great listing of by county where people go to a pumpkin patch. Right. Our newsletter for our members just came out, and it's the Fall Pumpkin and Corn Maze Festival. So if you're up north in Yavapai and you go to Mortimer's Family Farm, you'll get to check out their maze and also pick a pumpkin. Um, if you're here in the valley, if you haven't heard of Schneff Farms, then you know you haven't really done a fall festival. <laughs> so right. Schneff Farms is here in the Maricopa County area. We break it out by county, but we've got so much going on. I've just barely scratched the surface there's at least about 10 to 15 different festivals taking place apple annies and wilcox yes apple annies and wilcox we've got all sorts of things going on wonderful well can we can find that all as well as as 
let me start that over. We can find that as well at azfb.org. Azfb.org, and we're also going to post an article in fillyourplate.org. So. And from AZFB, Arizona Farm Bureau.org, you can get to fill your plate and all Correct. these other links. Correct. So start there and you can get your $60 a year membership and benefit from all these great uh, added value programs y'all have put together. Julie Murphy of the Farm Bureau, thanks for coming down here this Saturday morning with us. Thank you, Romy.